Welcome to the My Family Coach podcast. I'm Claire and each week you'll find me interviewing a guest expert to find out more about the tricky world of child behaviour, all in handy 15 minute-ish bite-sized chunks. At the end of each episode we'll send you away with three practical tips. It's perfect for parents, carers and professionals working with children. And if this episode leaves you wanting more, you can watch, listen and read our wide range of free resources on the My Family Coach website. I'm joined today by Joe Grace. Joe Grace is a sensory engagement and inclusion specialist, doctoral researcher, and an author and trainer and TEDx speaker. She is the founder of the Sensory Projects. And today, Joe and I are talking about the impact of senses on children's behaviour. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. No worries. I'm really looking forward to this topic. I was, you know, saddling up to you off air talking about how interesting the, the topic is. And, and yeah, I think we're going to have a really good natter because we're, we're talking about the impact of senses on behaviour. And I'm I'm really fascinated. I don't know much about this topic. So as a practitioner, I'm really, really excited. But if we could start off just with a book you'd recommend on this topic. Well, I have to give a very biased recommendation, which is a book called My Mummy is Autistic. And it's written by the UK's youngest published author. And it's illustrated in beautiful felt tip pen drawings. Um, It was written by a five year old. He had only just turned five, like literally like a day into five Ah. about the language processing differences that autistic people and other neurodivergent people experience. Um, And it's written by my son. So as a very, very proud mummy, I have to showcase his book there. But I do recommend I think, it. Good book. I, well, I'm fascinated. It doesn't matter if uh, you happen to be related to the world now world famous author uh, of the book. We'll put a link to the book in the notes of the podcast. But I think when you hear it from a child's perspective about their own family, I think it makes everything more powerful, doesn't it? I think quite often autism and other neurodivergent conditions are showcased as things of childhood that you might grow out of or get better from. And when you read stuff about them, it's always adults talking about children and seeing it through the naive and very accepting eyes of a child where the difference is just, all right, that's the difference. Fine. Let's get on with things is really refreshing. It is. And I'm already going off topic. I can't bring myself (laughs) to stay on topic for more than two minutes. But I I, I remember, you know, when I talked to my nieces, nephews about diversity in um, sexuality, five, six years, it it just not it doesn't mean anything. Just oh, yeah. Just like, oh, if if the world was that simple with adults, I think we'd have a much easier ride, wouldn't we? That's definitely the challenge of it. Yeah. If a child can understand this, then what's the adult world struggling with? But we were talking about the impact of the senses on behaviour. We were, we we hadn't even begun, but we were trying. No, we, <laughs> I've got, and you're bringing us back to the topic. That's really key. I could talk about loads of other things, but let's go back to the topic. You're right. Oh, so you're at risk because this is a topic I can talk about for upwards of about eight hours. And I think we've got about half an hour to chat today. But I was thinking if I was going to pick like a sensory system, because in my work, 
So I'm a sensory engagement specialist, as you just said in the introduction. My work involves me having a deep understanding of the senses. And also because I just told you that that book is written by my son, I'm obviously also autistic. And so that capacity to focus intently on a topic and learn everything about it is why I've got so much to say about this topic. But when I've been doing my work, people often ask me, oh, you know, so you're autistic and autistic people have sensory differences. What are your sensory differences? And I've always got, I've gone, well, do you know what? I'm one of those strange autistic people that I don't actually have any. No, all of my sensation of the world is perfectly normal um, because I'm the person sensing it, aren't I? So of course, I think it's normal because this is the way I see the world and this is the way I hear the world. And it's only like I've been working as a sensory engagement specialist mm. for a good decade now. And I've known I was autistic since I was 11. I was only diagnosed in adulthood. And it's literally like in the last two years that I've gone, oh, actually, my sense it is quite different, isn't it? The way I was <laughs> Because you don't censor other people's senses. And so if you're supporting children who've got these sensory differences, they won't necessarily know. They won't be able to articulate it to you. And, and they won't realise that you're not experiencing the same thing as them. So it makes it really difficult when you're like exploring why they're behaving as they're behaving to do that intuitive work that you would do in any other situation if in another situation you'd think you know what would I be feeling if I was that stressed or yeah. why would I, what would have upset me but when you're trying to think through somebody else's sensory systems it's so bafflingly difficult even for a sensory engagement specialist that's really interesting I've never thought of it that way and I I sometimes share on training when we're talking about sort of sensory needs that I you know, I'm aware that some of my sensory needs are different from my partner. That's like a good base. And I wear bamboo cotton socks because I, f I just generally feel better in myself when I'm wearing softer socks. And I can get a bit angry if I'm not wearing those socks or they're not available. And I sometimes use that as an example about all of us kind of having quirks of sensory needs. So I'm aware sometimes that small things can affect me, I guess, to do with with touch and my senses. But what, what could it look like at home if we've got, you know, a child perhaps on the autistic spectrum who is struggling with behaviour at home and maybe a parent thinks it might be something to do with senses. What what could it look like and yeah, feel like? I don't know. I'm going to do all the yeah. senses now. Smell like. <laughs> totally with you on the socks thing, by the way. When I work, so I work nationally and internationally delivering training about the senses. And when I work, I quite often present barefoot. And I actually have it in my contract. People have to sign before they book me to agree that I will be allowed to work barefoot. And because I'm somebody who uses mouth words, who can write a contract, I can have that need met. I can I can force people yeah, to yeah. sign to say that I will be allowed to take my shoes off. If I was somebody less articulate, less able to express myself, I would likely have more need to not have my shoes on. And I'm more likely to be forced to have my shoes on but back to your question you said what would what might it look like at home and I've got an example of this that I came across recently with some families and it was um I'm very active on social media so I know you put out my social media links people are very welcome to come and connect with me and they will see what an appalling amount of time I spend on Facebook <laughs> things like that 
but I was in one of these groups that supports families who've got autistic children or autistic family members and there was a mum posting and it was really you know like it was one of those end of the day I've just had enough of this and she said me and my husband we just bought our first little house together and it's not like a big fancy house but it's our house and we've done it up and I just like want it to be nice but my son keeps ripping down all the pictures that we've got in our living room and she's got the you can just imagine it can't you like it'd be yeah. nice framed pictures of the family and and she was just so like down so I, was like, I just want a nice home I've worked really hard and he's just smashing it up and and I've had it and I don't know what to do and it was really interesting to read the responses because I could see like you could see the teachers going yeah. well have you tried putting up his own work on the walls so that he know and it was something he was doing at school as well he was trashing the displays at school you know so that he knows that the stuff on the walls is valuable and maybe he won't rip it up and disrespect it if it's his own work and mm. then at school she was going well no they do this at school and at school he misses playtime if he you know he knows that there's consequences if he's not allowed to rip the displays down and he's got to learn and you know he gets rewarded if he doesn't or he gets no playtimes if he does and there's all these sort of behavior modification tricks are being built up around this child but he's still ripping the wall displays down and ripping ripping the pictures at home down and I I actually sent her a message in the end and I said like if he was trying to be naughty he's very unlikely to notice family portraits isn't he if he's trying to be naughty he'd smash another kid's toy or he'd take a thing that he knows that you're really in he wouldn't look at the pictures on the mm. wall the reason that he's going for the stuff on the wall at school and the stuff on the wall at home is because he's processing the visual environment differently and this is a problem that happens over and over again with people's understanding of neurodivergent conditions is that it gets seen as a behavior, not mm. a neurotype. And when you're looking at that condition as a behavior, you're thinking, well, the behavior is wrong. He's pulling the stuff off the wall. We've got to fix the behavior, fix the behavior with a behavior chart or with mm. like promises of chocolate or threats of, you know, iPad removal. And those things do like those are ways of modifying behavior if it's behavior. But this is a different neurotype. And one of the differences um, between autistic people and non-autistic people is a difference with visual processing. And before I say this, I've just said autistic people, like we're all the same. Obviously, <laughs> that doesn't count. But broad brush, you know, yeah, most yeah. Um, quite often um, we have a visual processing difference. And that difference, the analogy I like best for it is. I'm just looking at you, you're probably too young. But do you remember the old cathode ray televisions, like the big fat televisions, or have you ever seen one in a museum? <laughs> like, uh, I'm 41, I'm just going to put it out really? there. Oh, yeah, I'm 41. Oh, it's because I'm wearing a Stranger now. Things t-shirt, you know. <laughs> I do remember those, yeah. Okay, so the old cathode ray televisions, they, to update their image, they used to scan across all the pixels on the screen. So if you were watching them, you would see this like little flicker run across the screen. Yeah. as it checked like does this pixel need to change color no this pixel's staying still and then as it gets to the pixels that are changing it goes okay I need to update these ones and it's like it reads the whole screen whereas the digital tvs the nice thin ones that everybody's used to now you don't see that little flicker because they don't they don't produce the image in the same way what they do is they take like a digital photo mm. and then just change anything that moves so they know digitally what's there 
So they're only bothering with the bits of the image that move. So it's a much um, lower amount of energy that they need. More efficient, yeah. Much more yeah. efficient. Yeah, they just do that update. And it's an almost perfect analogy for the difference between autistic sight and non-autistic sight. In the autistic people see the whole room all the time. They read all of it. They see all the detail. They see, which makes us really good at being scientists and spotting tiny details and things like this. Um, but it means that being in the visual environment is really knackering because mm. vision is a third of your cerebral cortex. So it's like it's a brain drain. It it. It uh, if you've ever been on holiday to like on a sightseeing holiday and you've gone around and like looked at loads of museums and things you get to the end of the day and you're tired from seeing and that child was tired and he was trying to fix it he was trying to clear off all that visual clutter on the wall and clear off the clutter in the classroom wall so that he could cope and when you view that behavior as a neuro difference rather than a behavior difference you're feeling towards it is the same is is different sorry mm. when you see it as a behavior difference you're like why are you being what it's all so like, yeah yeah and when you go it's a neuro difference you go oh my goodness i'm so sorry i put you in a place where you felt that stressed that you had to literally rip stuff off the walls and it was so lovely with that mum because she was like i could easily just leave the pictures off one wall he's like yeah have a clear wall and he can have a chair that faces that wall. And it looks really, you know, to somebody who likes pictures and clutter, it looks a bit stark. But actually for him, that's going to be much more relaxing. And when I've done work in schools, I've done things like fit roller blinds to the top of displays so that you can just bring down a plain, neutral visual yeah. environment and take away that pressure of all that visual processing. I think it's interesting putting it onto the perspective of, of home, though, because I, I don't really like clutter etc I don't like loads of things up we've moved into our house and it's been like a year now and there's hardly anything up on the walls because I'm sort of you know just waiting for my partner to like lather everything on the walls I'm waiting for it but I'm in a position where I'm able to say my needs and wants and do that in a socially acceptable way and that's a, a privilege and a skill that I'm sure that I've learned you know over many years but that and that that's where we're stuck maybe at home sometimes with children that that those nuances of being able to get wants and needs met and actually lack of control obviously in in environment is is going to be a big part in this yeah and it's it's a really tricky sort of piece of advice to be giving because if the advice was well you just need this behavior chart or you just need this you know then it's a really simple and practical piece of advice but actually the advice is to get as deeper understanding of that neuro difference as you can, because it won't be a one answer for every child. It will be your answer for your child. And so understanding some of those brain differences helps you to look at your child and consider what might be going on. So the, the visual processing difference is quite a common one. People um, quite often experience difficulties with children and eating when children mm. have sensory differences and proprioceptive differences so I don't know how many senses your um, audience go to but I run to generally on the sensory projects I run to seven sensory systems so I do the famous five and then a couple of subconscious senses yep. 
But subconscious senses are really dangerous. It's like gateway drugs. Once you start with a few. So I'm quite often up to nine now. Oh, okay. And I get into these Twitter chats with people go, do you realize there's 11 sensory systems? Do you realize this? And actually you've got 33 sets of neurons that control your senses. So arguably you've got 33. So it's a dangerous slide to go on. Yeah. But some of the other subconscious senses are really interesting when you're considering behavior across a neuro divide. So talk to me a bit more about the other uh, senses and um, how that might relate to behavior. So we've talked about visual processing. I pick yeah. a couple of your favorites, maybe not all um, <laughs> three, like a rundown. But... Like choosing between children. Um, <laughs> so, so, so a good one to understand this across the neurodivide would be differences in your proprioceptive sense. And your proprioceptive sense is your awareness of where your body is in space. So if people wanted to do a test, they would extend their finger, like point your arm out really far, close your eyes and then bring your fingertip perfectly to the tip of your nose. And as you do that with your eyes shut, you use your awareness of where your finger is combined with your awareness of where your nose is. So you're not, unless you like felt your way along your face and used your sense of touch, which would have been cheating, you've used your proprioceptive awareness to locate yourself in space. And quite often I'm eavesdropper on those conversations where people go would you prefer to be deaf or would you prefer to be blind I think I'd prefer to be deaf <laughs> like like there's some sort of hierarchy of the senses and if you said to somebody would you prefer to be blind or would you prefer to lose your proprioception they'd be like proprioception I, I didn't even know I had it you can take that one I don't need it but if you lose your proprioceptive yeah. sense, that equates to total paralysis so these are not nothing key things, these subconscious senses. They're just sensory systems that we use instinctively. We don't have to consciously direct them and operate them. So your proprioceptive sense is your awareness of where your body is in space. And it's really key to you feeling safe and secure because your senses are about, well, at a fundamental level, they're about finding food. Is that food? Does that smell like food? Does that taste like food? Mm. Not becoming food. Weak, monster, run away. And your proprioceptive sense is telling you where your body is. And you want to know whether your body is safe. So it's a sensory system that's very much about the not becoming food rather than the finding of food, although it would help you climb a tree. Yeah. And you've probably had an experience of it kicking out on you like just on the boundaries of sleep, just as you're waking up or falling asleep, do you ever get that sensation of falling? Yeah. And it's a really high anxiety sensation. And I know like when I mime it on training days, I'm always up on my tiptoes because it's got that, like it sucks you up feeling. And what's happening in those moments is the proprioceptive sense is either waking up slightly after you or falling asleep slightly before you. And for a moment, you experience the world without access to proprioception. And the world without access to proprioception is terrifying. Yeah. It feels like falling through space. And, and if you think about, if you kind of freeze frame yourself in that moment, if somebody tried to talk to you in that moment, you wouldn't, like you'd barely know they were there, would you? Because your information that you get from your senses beats all other forms of information like we use it in our language in order to like win like we go, I saw it for myself I heard it with my own ears it means if I sensed it it is true yeah. and at the moment when you're sensing that you are falling that is true and there is no even if somebody stood over you and went you're not falling it's still true because you're you could do it yourself you could know consciously like this is that feeling that I get when I'm in bed and I'm not actually but your senses will still win they're like no you're falling 
and it puts a real distance between you and the world you know if there was somebody there you wouldn't feel with them you would feel Mm. really far away from them and you hear sometimes um autistic people described as being in their own little world and it makes it sound like there's a sort of nice world with fairies and flowers (laughs) that we get to live in and there isn't there's just the one world and that own little world can be a mismatch between your sensory processing capacities and abilities and the world as it is and when you experience that mismatch as you feel like you're falling you're not in this world but you don't go away to some nice world you're Mm. just on your own and so actually what you do in bed which is like slap the bedclothes to find out you like my proprioception is not telling me where I am quick find out through my sense of touch here I am if you did that as soon as you do that that feeling goes away and it's like you're back in the room you yeah. have it, it brings it closer it brings the world closer to you and a lot of autistic people and neurodivergent people experience differences with their proprioceptive processing so I'm I'm one of these people so it's like you're the proprioceptive equivalent of partially sighted. So that sensation that you have when you feel like you're falling, Mm -hmm. we would have a little bit of that all the time. And that puts a little bit of distance between those people and us. And actually that, that strategy of finding out where you are through touch. So I do a thing with all of my work is with really, really cheap stuff. (laughs) I've got boxes of things and we moved house and my partner who helped me move house was like why are we moving all this recycling shouldn't we be putting it for the rubbish (laughs) like I quite often use like half of a really cheap dustpan and brush set so you've got a a bristly brush to just stroke people along like along their skin of their forearms and their hands because it gives you that tactile information of this is where you are and it it takes you from that (gasps) to you know back here and there's loads of products that get sold that are addressing a similar sort of sensory difference it like the weighted blankets and compression yeah. wear clothing and all of those things are they're really valuable they also very heavily marketed and there's a huge increase in price that you pay yeah what they're doing is addressing a sensory difference and you don't need to spend a lot of money to do that you just need to recognize what that difference is because if somebody goes around <gasps> feeling like that all the time in that state where you're you're more likely to snap you're more yeah. likely to flinch you're more likely to have a sort of a volatile response I quite often meet children who people will say they they did it and there was no trigger you know yeah. they spontaneously combusted and there was no trigger and like if you're already like that and <gasps> like this then it's so much quicker for you to to lose it but if I could give you something that took you from <gasps> to her <laughs> <laughs> at a sensory level then that's a really lovely way of supporting you it is I was thinking of a time where I used one of those VR um sets yeah. and it was one where it's you put it on it takes you up an elevator you go across a plank and you basically walk off a plank and fall to your your death <laughs> it's lovely really <laughs> cheery cheery VR experience I did but actually as you were speaking I was like oh you know I I don't feel like that across you know across the day I'm, I'm not diagnosed with with autism but actually that experience with VR was probably the closest that I could come because I certainly wasn't part of the world and if someone had said anything to me at that point I would have been really angry because <laughs> I was like <laughs> I was done you know and, and I wasn't yeah I wasn't connected it's was interesting 
sometimes I talk to people, you know, that phrase, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yes. So when you meet those children or, or adults, indeed, because I, I work with people of all ages where they say there's no trigger. You know, they just do this behavior yeah. and there's no trigger um, <laughs> as if by the time they've got to that point, they're normally so frustrated because they haven't been able to figure out what's going on that there's a projection within that of just the person is just really annoying like they, and they just go off and about they're like they're they're annoyed with them and if if you have somebody who's doing some you know what would these people be doing these people are biting other people or they're yeah. throwing heavy objects they're, they're doing these big sort of explosive behaviors and your normal first step would be to see what happened just before, you know, why have they felt this stress? What's going mm. on? We want to change that. Or to see what happens just afterwards. You know, is it that every time you throw your chair across the classroom, you get to leave the classroom and go somewhere else? And maybe you just want to do that. So that's why you're throwing your chair. So you look at the stuff that happens before and afterwards. And quite often that will help you problem solve what's going on. And it's when they can't find an answer in the before and the after, when they go, oh, he just he just does it for no reason. Yeah nobody nobody just spontaneously behaves you don't just suddenly go oh you know I think I'll hit someone you it, it doesn't happen it all happens for a reason but when in those situations where it's it seems like it's no reason and it's just happening here there and everywhere I think of the straw that broke the camel's back because it's not it's not that straw that breaks the camel's back is it's everything that's already on the camel yeah it doesn't really matter what that straw is it, it, the straw could be like next to a nothing it's not really a trigger at all it's not really important to that person it's just that that camel's back is already so overloaded and so if you're supporting somebody or if you love somebody who's already feeling <gasps> you know like that because they haven't got the proprioceptive awareness of where they are and then they're in like a really visually cluttered environment that's just knackering them out and they can't do you're thinking about what the load is on the camel when you meet those people and trying to figure out if there's any way of taking some of that stuff off I love metaphors and I think the straw that broke the camel's back is my new favorite because I can really picture it in my head of the yeah of how that might relate to children uh, and adults that I've worked with in the past um but yeah I'm conscious of time and um I'm actually conscious that I really want to talk about the 33 uh, senses I feel like we've managed <laughs> to cover two in uh, 30 minutes which is upsetting but yeah just it's a bit of a summary about the things that we've talked out talked about three top tips would be great just to finish us off Joe. three top tips consider neurodiversity neurodivergent conditions as neurotypes not as behavior patterns um don't go hunting for the straw that broke the camel's back look what the camel's got loaded on its back already and consider the impact of the senses on behavior because the information that you get from your sensory systems is primary and it beats all the other stuff if you can convey to somebody at a sensory level that they are safe and secure then they will behave like a like a little animal that feels safe and secure absolutely and I've got a couple of things that I've taken away from our chat and I knew I would uh, talking to you so it's been a real privilege to talk to you and you're my new favorite guest because you thought I was younger a lot younger <laughs> than <laughs> I actually am so I'll give you that fiver later uh, <laughs> but thanks so much for your time Joe, and catch up soon thanks very much for having me on you've been listening to the my family coach podcast Thank you for joining us as we lift the lid on the challenging world of child behaviour. 
Remember to subscribe to listen to all our episodes and there's heaps more helpful support for all your parenting needs on the My Family Coach website. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.